On the 1st of June, Trump officially isolated the US on climate change on the world stage as he reneged on the Paris Climate Agreement. On the 2nd of June, 11 workers were hospitalised at an accident at the Poolbeg incinerator in Rings End after lime was released into a gas treatment area. The incinerator opened in April after being opposed by residents over a 20-year campaign. On the 9th of June, the Journal of Peace Research published a study on the exacerbating effects of climate change-driven drought and floods on politically unstable countries, countries which happen to be among those most affected by climate change. There have been food and water riots in Morocco, Bangladesh, Tunisia and Indonesia, and the Syrian war was preceded by one of the worst droughts in its history in 2008. On the 17th of June, a fire that blazed for three days at a Pemex oil refinery in Salina Cruz, Oaxaca, Mexico, resulted in black acid rain falling over the surrounding areas. 3,000 residents were evacuated and returned to find their homes covered in ash. They were given no official warnings by the company or by the government. In 2012, an explosion at a natural gas refinery owned by the same company, Pemex, killed 26 people. On the 19th of June, 62 people were killed and dozens more injured in wildfires in central Portugal. There were areas completely surrounded by fire and some people burned to death while trying to escape in their cars. The cause was a dry thunderstorm. World Weather Attribution, a global coalition of climate scientists, have proven that heat waves in Europe have become 10 times more frequent and are undeniably linked to human-caused climate change. In the same week, explosions were heard in the Yamal Peninsula in Siberia as local reindeer herders saw pillars of smoke and flame touching the sky. This was caused by melting permafrost thawing out dead vegetation and releasing trapped methane. The melting permafrost has been leaving similar craters in the ground over the last 14 years, some as large as 70 metres deep. Methane is 20 times more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. On the 23rd of June, there was an excessive heat warning for Southern California, Arizona, Nevada. Phoenix, Arizona had three days of 50 degree heat. Several deaths were reported along with many burns from people walking barefoot or sitting onto car seats. The burn treatment centre in Phoenix saw twice its usual number of patients. Dozens of flights were cancelled. There was also record power demand and there were outages because of air conditioner use. The utility company stated that the outages would have been worse if not for the recent introduction of rooftop solar panels. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change say human influence has more than doubled the likelihood of heat waves in some places since 1950. On the 26th of June, a new study published in the journal Nature stated that global sea level has been rising faster in the last decade than any previous decade, due to an accelerating loss of ice mass, especially from the Greenland ice sheet. The study was conducted by a number of institutions in China and Australia. This is following on from another report released in March on the Antarctic ice sheet, which stated that the UN's warnings about sea level rise are now outdated and seem stupidly optimistic. On the 27th of June, Chinese banks announced a $7 billion planned investment in liquefied natural gas platforms off the coast of Africa. Liquefied natural gas has been pointed to as safer and less harmful to climate than other types, but the gas it uses is methane, which is 20 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. On the 28th of June, Bumi Armada, a Malaysian oil and gas firm, established a floating production storage fleet in the North Sea, handling 460,000 barrels of oil per day, the third of four projects planned for this year. And the French government, clearly in line with their decision to ban all future fossil fuel exploration on their own land, announced plans to invest 1 billion euro in the Nigerian oil and gas industry. On the 29th of June, SK Group, a South Korean energy conglomerate, announced 1.6 billion US dollars investment in General Electric to help expand the US shale gas industry, encouraged by the opportunities that will arise under the Trump administration. They intend to help US export trillions of dollars worth of liquefied natural gas.
On the 2nd of July, India broke its own world record by planting 66 million trees in 12 hours. The previous record was 49.3 million. One and a half million volunteers walked along the Narmada River to plant the trees. The action was supported by the government as part of their plans to carry out their agreed-upon goals under the Paris Agreement. On the 3rd of July, a group of 13 protesters at the Preston New Road site in Lancashire in the UK locked on and barricaded the entrance to the fracking site. This is part of an ongoing protest which has escalated over the past months. On the 10th of July, the Carbon Disclosure Project and the Climate Accountability Institute published the Carbon Majors Report, stating that just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global carbon emissions. More than half can be traced to just 25 corporate and state-owned bodies. Between the 10th and 12th of July, a 1 trillion tonne iceberg measuring 5,800 square kilometres broke off from the Larsen Sea ice shelf in Antarctica, leaving the shelf 10% smaller. To put this in perspective, it's larger than the combined surface areas of London, Paris, Hong Kong and Rome. The iceberg is expected to break into smaller bodies, potentially endangering shipping routes in the South Pacific and South Atlantic. It has also destabilised the rest of the ice. On the 19th of July, measurements over the Mackenzie River Delta in northwest Canada revealed 13 times higher than usual concentrations of methane in the air. Newly thawed permafrost is the most likely cause. On the 24th of July, the Welsh Police Commissioner stated that Welsh cops will no longer be policing the Preston New Road fracking site. The process of hydraulic fracturing is effectively unlawful in Wales. The site in Lancashire is now policed 24 hours a day. On the 25th of July, two activists from the Catholic Workers Group in the US, Jessica Rezincheck and Ruby Montoya, claimed responsibility for a number of acts of sabotage against the Dakota Access Pipeline, including setting fire to heavy machinery and destroying pipeline valves. They said they spoke out to encourage other people to do the same. So welcome to the sixth episode of Turning Earth, the environmental podcast in which we examine how the forces of greed and stupidity are, I was going to say slowly but surely, but actually fairly rapidly destroying the planet. Yes, and, uh, which we have introduced with the, the headlines there with all sorts of scary tidbits in them. <laughs> yeah, and, and at this point uh, we should probably point out the obvious, I suppose, in that we are by no means an unbiased news source. No, and we don't intend to be either. No, we uh, we very much believe that global warming is happening and that it's it's a phenomenon caused by human activity, specifically by rampant neoliberal capitalism and the concentration of power and wealth to the few. We have an agenda, folks. We do. <laughs> and uh, in this episode, moving forward, we'll be discussing a number of things, pretty much entirely relating to the island of Ireland. Uh, first of all, we're going to be talking about uh, Shell. We're going to be talking about fracking the ban of fracking in the south, the continued threat in the north. Uh, we'll be looking at some new Irish climate change deniers, the Irish Climate Science Forum. And Shady. we'll be talking about the controversy over an Apple data centre in Athenry and just generally talking about the, I guess, the neglect of rural Ireland. So um, w- since the last episode, we've had quite a big, huge chunk of news. This made us laugh a lot because we dedicated pretty much an entire episode on the last time to the Shell Corporation and the Shell to Sea campaign. And um, since we've since that episode went up, um, the biggest single piece of news has happened with that campaign, which was that Shell, who were the biggest uh, shareholders, stakeholders in that project, 
have now sold the entirety of their 45% stake in that overall project to the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board. (laughs) So even though we don't want to spend too much time on this topic because we already put an entire episode onto it, we couldn't neglect to mention this. So we're just going to talk briefly about the fact that... Yeah, it's like we uh, we released a film without being given the entire script. Yeah. It would be weird (laughs) of us not to to come back to this. The biggest twist was not covered. So just to follow on from that. So Shell were the biggest stakeholders, as I said, and now they've sold all... All of that out. They have sold their shares at a loss of approximately a billion, I believe, dollars on their projected earnings. But um, it's it's crazy where we've ended up after so many years. And as you were saying, uh, one of our... Um, well, yeah, a, f- a friend of ours who would have been involved in the campaign for years was talking to him about this. And he says the thing that, that angers him and that hurts the most is the amount of... Uh, the amount of... Destruction. Harm and destruction and personal pain that Shell, that Shell caused in Northwest Mayo and to people who resisted it and that the state assisted them in this the state through their through the police physically effect, and mentally if, if effectively acted as a private security force to enable Shell to do what they wanted absolutely uh, and as, as uh, Maura Harrington said in the last episode they they don't care about the region they just as soon They're as they, gone. they got what they wanted but they didn't quite get what they wanted they just pack up and leave yeah um, and they're well, gone now they, they no longer have any interest in Ireland yeah and uh, it reminds me as well of the the quote we read out in the last episode from a Shell Ireland spokesperson who said, uh, we look forward to being part of Ireland's energy security for the, the coming years. That was quite a recent statement too, uh, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was released. Uh, they have some cheek. Uh, they obviously yeah. knew this was coming yeah. down the line, you know? So, yeah, because they don't just make decisions like that overnight to sell up. Like They were obviously obviously knew what they were going to do. Of course, um, yeah. And this language of meeting Ireland's energy security, it, it, it's the same thing comes up in the, the Irish Times article where we read about this Yeah, it says Corrib has the potential to meet up to 60% of Ireland's gas needs and it's expected to supply fuel for up to 20 years that yeah, sounds that like that we PO. can buy back at the full market rate yeah. so it's not it's not securing really an energy supply in that sense is it no. this was such an important project to do and was so important we were told that this was you know essential by the government and by the propaganda sources at the time and look how important it was that like I mean the, the project still exists but obviously it was all it was all lies, wasn't it, about how important this project was. It could have been done in a totally different way. We've totally different people involved now and it's And you would think maybe that the the Fina Gael government that we currently have, sort of, might have learned from the the past mistakes of their almost identical Fina Fall twins, um, in giving away oil and gas. Uh, and you, you you might think that because oh they banned fracking recently, uh, and that's a majorly positive step. But then less than a week after banning fracking the Minister for Climate Action, as he's called, Dennis Nocton, uh, signed away the was the, the drum drum bag, well, wasn't it to yeah. uh, to Providence Resources, um, for oil drilling, um, so, the Porcupine Basin off the southwest of Ireland, which includes the the Druid Drum bag and Diablo prospects. So again, we have in this case oil, but more natural resources being given away effectively by the state. Yeah. Still no state take, still very, very low tax, um, and no real security of supply. Like they're given first shout, but they're buying it back at full market rate. There's no, this isn't something that's happening for Absolutely. Ireland. This is it's still a privatized like everything in Ireland. Like everything in Ireland. It's totally privatized and it's totally down to the logic of the markets. We'll buy, as you said, back at the market rate. So we're not even getting any sort of national benefit out of this for the people of Ireland. Which would be sensible. I mean, would that not get you elected? I think it probably would. But it might make uh, your corporate sector, private sector uh, buddies less than happy that you, if you're a politician in that position, you're probably looking to get a job in that 
region perhaps or sorry in, in that private sector after you quit your uh, government job by the way which is I say a lot of the logic behind things like that you know yeah, yeah. the kind of the corporate state kind of uh, melding together so wasn't Brian Cowan elected to the board of Topaz that's right there was a yeah. few there was a few Topaz those, by uh, the way uh, are basically a rebranding of Shell they, yeah. they, they sell Shell oil and Shell gas they are I think Shell have sold their stake in that company but they still they have, have, ne- they have now but they, they began as basically a means the... for Shell to sell their because yeah. the Shell gas stations were becoming increasingly unpopular with the campaign and also so incredibly unpopular that yeah. yeah so just to put that in perspective for you so um, we have the potential for lots more uh, oil being taken out of the ground that should stay in the ground and that's the bad news but the little bit of good news is that um, luckily frac- hydraulic fracturing has actually been banned in the Republic of Ireland it has and that's that's something that is really worth celebrating and I think we owe a great deal of thanks to people who've campaigned against that especially people up in Leitrim and yes. in the northwest generally who've been working tirelessly and we're talking about a fairly diverse group of people using different tactics different groups different individuals yeah, all working towards the same goal and they achieved it and it's amazing it is it is it was something that was very obviously specific and local to particular areas mm. around there in Leitrim and then obviously not not very far away in from in Fermanagh but that's we'll, we'll get to that that's on the other side of the border um, and there's been a lot of local resistance in all those places and um, I believe that even there was the Fine Gael uh, councillor or, or TD who, who um, proposed originally so yeah it was brought by uh, Fine Gael TD Tony McLaughlin from Leitrim but the sad thing about it, as you, you you touched on there, is that a few minutes walk away from where it's been banned, it is still legal in County Fermanagh, because uh, that's a different political jurisdiction, a different government oversees it, a different yes. government signs the leases, and, uh, and fracking I'm, is still very much a threat there. And that's the same water table, it's the same water sources that would be damaged if fracking goes ahead there. That's the thing. The, Should the, we maybe at this point describe... The process of fracture, hydraulic fracture. We fracturing. should explain a little bit of what's going on because it's not always that clear. I think in kind of the public eye, it's something that's relatively new to our part of the world. It's been in the United States for a good number of years, twenty or more, or thirty even I years. Think it's been going to some degree or other since the seventies, but it really took off there in the kind of early two thousands. I think in the states, and uh, you see, we we st- it's not like other kinds of. Uh, fossil fuel development you start to see the negative effects of it very very quickly like within a few years you see people getting sick and it's because the long before it ever starts being even burned just yeah, the, yeah. Pro- the process of extracting it is so much as bad it is in con- you know conventional I'm doing uh, air quotes you can't air, see air quotes air qu- you can't see I'm doing air quotes there conventional uh, oil and gas extraction is potentially bad enough even at extraction there's a lot of burning off there can be obviously oil spills which are terrible but mm. hydraulic fracturing you're basically smashing into rock where there's little pockets, tiny pockets. It's like of air. shale gas, so it's it's like you can imagine the rock as a sponge, and the gas is kind of trapped all through the rock. Through it, so they have to drill down and then drill horizontally, and like you said, trigger explosions to make cracks in the rock, and then they force down at huge pressures a mixture of water and different bonding chemicals and uh, propens to keep the the cracks open, and then they flush the water back out, which is now bonded with the gas. So they're left with these tailing ponds of completely unfilterable, completely unusable water, which yeah. was fresh water before. By the way. And that's another major issue with fracking is just the water that's wasted. So f- never mind the danger of contaminating the sources. Fresh water, which is going to be increasingly... Uh, wars will probably be fought over someday. Yeah, Well, we're, we're running out of it a lot faster than yes. anyone cares to admit, really. Um, and there's a huge danger then that the water supplies will be contaminated afterwards. So that's... I think that's partly why the... You could you could say there's a few reasons why the campaign was successful, and I think one of them is that it's when you lay out for someone the process of hydraulic fraction compared yeah. to conventional oil and gas drilling, it's like 
it just seems like a totally insane process. Even the economics of it, like the one figure that sticks in my head is with traditional oil and gas drilling, for every one barrel of oil you spend in the process, you get about 30 barrels back. Yeah. With fracking, it's similar to tar sands in the sense that for every one barrel you spend, you get between three and five barrels back. Yeah. So it really is... It's a far less overall efficient energy to have to extract and try to yeah. use. You're scraping it's the bottle of the barrel, so Literally scraping the barrel, yeah, yeah. You're like... You, you, this is because we've gotten all the easy supplies have been, has been wasted out yeah. and now we're, we're stuck with this so uh, hydraulic fracturing has been banned in our I say one of the reasons as well is that you know there was a lot of reports of even though it's going on in the United States or because it's been going on in the United States there's been plenty of reports coming out that I think were reasonably surprisingly well kind of popularised or known mm. throughout the country before it potentially came in I mean there were certainly plans for hydraulic fracturing to be done in the Republic yeah. but then there was just reports being heard of this was really bad and this a is a lot of evidence yeah. you know people haven't destroyed water supplies in the United States you know so 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 a lot of a lot of stars aligned on that one I think um, mm. the situation in the north I think is a bit different I don't correct me if I'm wrong Tommy I don't think there's actually been any fracking started yet I think there's been there hasn't there's been two well, there's been exploratory drilling done in preparatory kind of work. Yeah, so just kind of testing the ground to see what's there, which was Carrickfergus are more over to the east than Belfu. It's, it's Fergus is very near to Belfast. Yeah, um, and the uh, the frightening thing about this is the site was literally a two minute walk from a reservoir that feeds all of northwest Belfast. Um, so you talk about a fair number of thousands of people. Yeah, thousands yeah. of people, and. Like you said, also in Belcoo, there was there was a test rig bought, brought in there. So even though it has been banned in the Republic of Ireland, fracking is still a threat to the island of Ireland while it remains absolutely a, a legal and permissible process in the north of Ireland. And we're going to talk to uh, Niall Bakewell now in a few minutes about um, about that situation generally and about what can be done, what what we can do in the south practically to to help our our friends in the north resist the process. But um, before we move on to Niall, I'd like to talk a little bit about what's going on over in England, which is also over, overseen by the Tory DUP Nightmare Coalition. <laughs> um, there's been, there's huge resistance going on at the moment. We kind of touched upon it a bit in the headlines at the Preston New Road site in Lancashire. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, been, I've been keeping a close eye on that and watching the videos that they're putting out. And it is... And it's been, it's been pretty upsetting for me to watch the videos as well because I think there's a lot of similarities between the way they are being policed and the way the Gardaí police the protests in Mayo brutality big a, time brutality and just no consistent kind of um, strategy if you like and lots of police being brought in from outside so the uh, we, we're going to play a few clips way. now of um, uh, a group called Netpol who um, they kind of monitor policing especially of environmental protests in England they're publishing a number of videos on Facebook taking statements from protesters who've been assaulted first uh, this is a clip of a woman who is locked on in an arm tube at the gates of the site. Police are not allowing us our legal right to protest. They will not allow us to slowball lorries. Three weeks ago, when we tried to slowball the lorry, the police threw me off my feet and knocked me unconscious. I feel safer doing this. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? But nobody's going to throw me off my feet and knock me out today. I'm here most days and Every day, the police are using force on the protesters, and it seems to be a different justification every time. Well, I think it confuses a lot of people, um, particularly particularly people that maybe haven't been before or seen the development of how 
policing has changed because it's inconsistent and it's inconsistent for those officers as well because they're not often the same ones on a you know they're on a rotation and I don't know at what point they come back onto the site so they often don't know what they're dealing with who they're dealing with and how but yeah on the subject of government inconsistency when it comes to the climate um, the same I suppose the same uh, the same criticisms can be levelled at the government of the Republic of Ireland as well as at the government of the UK because um, along with banning fracking they're also as we said signing off new exploration licences and drilling licences for oil and also the minister, again, the hilariously named Minister for Climate Action, Dennis Nocton, is officially making complaints to the European Union about Ireland's unrealistic climate change targets. Yeah. Which, which by the way, the targets globally, the, Ireland's targets are already falling short of what really, really has to happen to prevent the worst from happening. It's already, like, not enough. They're basically they talking less. about farming. And they're talking about um, farming involving lots of cattle, dairy farming and beef farming which is you know with the methane release of their farts <laughs> is uh, a colossal problem and um, we're going to get on to talking about that later on after the interview and it makes me really angry and it's kind of baffling as to before we just move on to talking to Niall um, why is it on this topic that the state feels like it needs to stand up for itself and say no we're not going to do what the EU tells us but when it came to bending over backwards uh, for the Troika and introducing austerity measures which crippled loads of people in the country they were like oh, yeah we'd do that no bother Absolutely. but now when it comes to climate regulation they're like ah oh, no you can't tell us to do claiming that claiming that they didn't have a choice that they couldn't have done anything and they were yeah. powerless but they're powerful when they want to be yeah why are they suddenly brave now or when they decide that they don't want to handle Apple's taxes yeah that's been ordered that they have to take yeah you know that's another example of that exactly so they can yeah. it's all it's all it's ideological that's the reason why it's ideological they, of course they can they can try to resist if they want yeah. you know they're part of the EU after all you know mm. But yeah, um, we'll talk a bit more about that later. But for now, here's uh, our interview with Niall Bakewell. So, can you tell us, uh, Niall, what campaigns and organisations are you a part of? Tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, so um, my name's Niall Bakewell. I'm the activism coordinator for Northern Ireland, for Friends of the Earth England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, I've been in this job for 10 years now, and... uh, been a very interesting time to to be in this job um my starting date coincided with the ascent to power of the dup and Sinn Féin in northern ireland the the famous chuckle brothers image of ian paisley and mark <laughs> mcginnis making best buds that happened about a month into my job um and why i think why that's particularly important is that for the previous four or five years um, all the green NGOs in Northern Ireland have been in a coordinated coalition campaign to massively reform environmental governance, um, and they were very, very close to winning. So during the period of direct rule between 2002 and 2007, when uh, we didn't have local politicians, we were being ruled from Westminster, um, two reports came out. Um, that confirmed that we had a terrible system of environmental regulation that was easily interfered with by politicians. Um, and suddenly, the deep ancient vein make friends, form a government, devolution is restored uh, under the St Andrews Agreement, and the DUP immediately take the environment brief. The DUP had been the only party who, during the period where we were 
developing the campaign had voiced their opposition to any major reforms to environmental regulation. And uh, as soon as they got into power, Arlene Foster, who was the then environment minister, received, um, she said how delighted she was to receive the report. And less than a year later, she said that she was rejecting all its findings. <laughs> Everything. Nothing was wrong. Um, and she said that she took the regulation of the environment too seriously to let it be taken away from government which tells you that's, that's very funny a very ambiguous that's slight of words i would know. say slight of hand of words i would say so then arling moves on she gets promoted um after the palace coup that deposed ian paisley in 2008 she gets moved on to the department of enterprise and that's the department that hands out exploratory licenses and drilling licenses in Northern Ireland. Right. So after she rejected, after she rejected the um, the reforms of environmental regulation, so that it would be more robust, she then started handing out uh, drilling licenses like Sweeties. Yeah. Exploratory licenses with with an option to very quickly turn into full drilling licenses if these guys find things. What is the current situation regarding the the legality and the licensing of hydraulic fracturing in Northern Ireland? Okay, so um, at the moment of the one time five exploratory licenses, which included the the option of um, non-conventional methods, only one actually still remains, and that is the one up at Woodburn, which is the only place Carrie where uh, an actual exploratory drill happened. But after the experience of Woodburn, I don't know if anyone's going to be too quick to try again. Um, Infrastrata, Infrastrata claimed that they found nothing at the, at the depth that they intended to drill in Woodburn. But, you know, there, there are many people who assert they'd intended to drill much deeper, and it was the daily stress of dealing with the encampment protesters <laughs> yeah. outside. Um, so Woodburn was a, uh, w- was a forest in the water catchment area for reservoirs that feed most of Belfast. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and Infrastrata managed to get permitted development rights, so no need for an environmental impact assessment or planning permission to drill um, in a place that was supposed to be reserved to never have anything happen at all, not even anything more than the lightest of um, animal grazing, hardly any even yeah. of that, and suddenly they are able to drill there. Yeah. Um, so a new, a new enterprise minister, a new infrastructure minister could in the future hand out new licenses it's basically effectively parked at the moment it's very much parked and up until the rhi scandal and the unfolding crisis um it probably wouldn't have ever started up again but if we are moving into we've had this long protracted sort of phony direct rule or or um, yeah false direct rule um, because the, the Northern Ireland Secretary is very loath to, to admit defeat on this one, although it's questionable how much we're doing to avoid it, defeat on this one. Um, but where the Tories 
are rapidly getting to very very hot water in England it you know it is imaginable that they could see Northern Ireland as a place to really get fracking going with with very very little pushback I mean direct rule is a kind of a form of benign dictatorship and often not that benign um, direct rule is where you're being ruled by Westminster directly, but where you're sending no politicians over who are ever any hope of really forming government. If direct rule does get imposed on Northern Ireland at some point in the future, if there was a Tory government in place who were still very determined to push fracking through and having difficulties over in England, that direct rule power is very tempting to try and, and push it through soft touch in Northern Ireland um, to, to sort of make it happen more quickly. That there would be less uh, resistance in that scenario if there was direct rule? The, yeah, there would be less resistance in that you don't have a democratically accountable um, local administration during periods of direct rule. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but what you will have is an increasingly um, active population. You know, this is the thing that has changed since the last period of direct rule. Um, sort of citizen activism is really getting going now across all different sorts of issues here. And it really, we really were completely docile as a population on matters outside of the troubles before really 2007. Yeah. But as we've watched practice sort of bed into our local politicians and felt like we deserve to be listened to more than during the election cycles, people have started engaging more and more and more in protesting, in organizing, in, in real citizen um, action on issues. And the environment is, is huge now. And a lot of other campaigns are really adopting the the issues around environmental issues fracking haven't been one really big wake-up call but now other issues about environmental governance about planning about uh, quarrying and mining loads, loads more um, local groups are getting going and fighting bad planning decisions uh, factory farming incinerators um, there was always a bit of activism there but not like not like now as I said I've been in the job 10 years I, I, the last two, three years have been remarkable. Just the, the, the broad sort of demographic sweep of people willing to get up, stand up and, and fight for their place. It's, it's been heartening in the, in the face of some very distressing behaviour on the part of government and civil service. Well, we wanted to ask uh, on the subject, I guess, of uh, popular activism. Um, the, uh, you, Eric, you had that question about the, the heating. Yeah, I had a, one question. Um, the re, the renewable heating incentive scheme uh, was originally well, it was purported, it was it was claimed that it was an environmentalist policy, but you ended up with a situation where sheds were being heated twenty four seven because there was no cap um, on the financial reward that people would, would receive for implementing the scheme. So we were wondering, has the presentation of this policy as environmentalist done any harm? to environmentalists or environmentalism in the north and also just to mention we had a slightly analogous situation in the south where we had water charges the government tried to introduce failed to introduce 
Um, the government claimed from the beginning that it was for reasons of water conservation. Although just for example, you know, they never made any effort whatsoever to fix any of the water infrastructure or to fix any of the leaks that were mentioned on a daily basis in relation to this. It, it, I mean, it, what, what we had here was an attempt uh, primarily by climate change denier and Chief uh, Sammy Wilson, the MP for East Antrim, yeah. to deflect the attention that was on the DUP at that point over to environmentalists. And it was laughed out of court. Nobody was accepting it. Uh, because, uh, and, and in fact, yes, you know, the, the, the way it got turned back was the one time the DUP actually do something that could be good for the environment, they managed to make it bad for the environment. <laughs> it, 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 basically, uh, the coverage, the relentless coverage and the relentless focus on the DUP stopped them from being able to deflect it onto environmentalists, which they right, really yeah, did yeah. try to do. Yeah. It didn't wash, it didn't work. The, the public perception um, was being much more shaped by very dutiful and uh, scrupulous journalism, especially by Sam McBride from the Belfast Newsletter. Really, really good journalism that, that wouldn't, wouldn't give up on the point that the scheme in England was good. The principle was good. Its transposition was uh, an affront to the environment. Absolutely, absolutely. There was a trickle, I remember, almost every day of like, it just snowballed and got worse and worse and worse. And what was the former DUP minister that came with the revelation, left the DUP then um, with the interview saying, that's right, yeah, Jonathan Bell, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that that was a particularly unedifying phase (laughs) of the whole story. It was, Um, yeah. Because, you know, when when you see uh, former allies fall in amongst themselves and, and start to fire off recriminations. It, it was it was very, very, it was just depressing to see. I actually, I remember watching that report. I was over in London the night that report was broadcast and sort of was watching it the next morning with my brother. And it was just, from, from the vantage point of England, it just felt so embarrassing. <laughs> um, we know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, we're just about out of time, Niall. Uh, so I just wanted to ask, finally, um, like there has been a ban on fracking here in the south, but it, it doesn't really mean anything until there's a ban on fracking in the north as well. And we were just wondering if there's anything uh, from our perspective that we could do to support such a ban being put in place in the north. What kind of solidarity can be offered? It, during this period of um, hiatus in the north, um, focus your attention on our brothers and sisters in Lancashire because right, yeah. making the fight there work will help to prevent any direct rule administration trying to impose it over here. Hmm. Really, you know, helping helping to hold back Quadrilla in Preston New Road, that is what I would say. If you can get involved with um, the bananas of lancashire facebook page ask them when and how they want uh you to go over there you know it's not that hard to jump on a boat to hollyhead and get a train over you know you could do do it in less than a day and go and show solidarity with them help them in their campaign because as i said that you know we've got this period of suspension nothing's happening here right now fight the fight in england because keeping keeping the holding the line there will then help with any future threat here. 
um, do right, yeah. sign up. You know, look look up the Stop the Drill campaign, uh, Stop the Drill Facebook page. Sign up to that. Keep a focus on the excellent work uh, that's going on um, to sort of keep the flame of the spirit of Woodburn alive. I mean, look, look up look up Woodburn um, Infrastrata. Really get to grips with what happened there because the the story of Stop the Drill, the story of the local um, local protectors and the campaigners coming from all over and of, um, especially Fiona Joyce and Magella McCarran really held the line um, the whole time there. Get yourself familiar with that because that's the place where there still is actually a license. Yeah, um, right. But for now, show solidarity with, with, with Press at New Road because that's that's where the fight is in the UK right now. Could you give us the name of that Facebook page in relation to Press the New Road? Um, so I would say look up the Nanas of Lancashire. I think Nanas. Um, yeah. It is a, a group of group of women who basically dress up as grannies and, and knit. Um, <laughs> and there's also the Preston New Road Action Group. Um, so yeah, you could you could sign up to join that. Um, and that's that's where the that's where the main fight in the UK is right now. Um, but also do keep an eye on the ongoing fight for environmental regulation reform in the north, um, because you know we we still have a failed environmental protection agency, and it's yeah. not just simply fracking water that's going to be going downstream. You know, it's runoff from illegal mines and yeah, quarries. Yeah. None of those pollutants know the border, so. Um, yeah, and as well as that, the threat of a factory farming here in the north as well. So, yeah, just just know that many of our rivers uh, flow into the Republic of Ireland. Of course, and of course. We have a field environmental regulator and terrible, terrible water quality problems. And fracking just efficiently add to those. So the island of Ireland, which is the island we call home, um, is the fifth biggest exporter of beef in the world. There's more than 95,000 farms in the country that are in some way involved with beef. It's a big industry in this farming country. Agriculture in Ireland, or the agriculture industry, if you will, accounts for over 30% of our greenhouse gas emissions. Very intense greenhouse gas emissions, especially from, you know, groups of cattle from beef farms coming all together. You get really, like, strong methane pollution from their farts, basically. Strong methane pollution. That's a very polite way of saying cow farts. And it's not distributed. It's very intense in one area. And methane is way, way, way worse than... Uh, carbon dioxide which as you know is famous for being really yeah. bad for the environment but methane is about 30 times worse it's, it's uh, no joke it's, it's 20 times worse it's 20 times worse excuse yeah. me although 21 is another figure I heard but it's around 20 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than in uh, the sense of CO2. trapping uh, heat and therefore uh, contributing to climate change um, and as well as that the amount of water used in animal farming in general especially beef farming versus vegetable farming growing vegetables is just off the charts um, I'm not going to go into the details of all those statistics right now but if you want to learn about it uh, the Stockholm International Water Institute uh, published a very very good report in 2012 called Feeding a Thirsty World where they examined uh, the amount of water required in farming in general and they estimate that if we continue on our current trend 
that there will not be enough water to feed everyone on the planet by 2050. Uh, right now we have more than enough water but it's being severely mismanaged and there's a lot of waste and the issue is that basically currently tw- in the west anyway 20% of our calories come from meat we need to reduce that to 5% if we want to l- use less water and if we don't do that by 2050 because industrial scale meat production is so water intensive more so than even other yeah. forms of monocrop culture which are also too water in- intensive but meat is that much worse that it's it's a very wasteful basically of fresh water to use it for that for basically what's in many cases is kind of a luxury product or the way that it's sold as a such. It, it is a luxury considering how much has to be done to get a piece of meat onto someone's plate. So something needs to be done basically about beef farming in Ireland because for as I said for such a small country mm. it's really going to be doing so much damage to the environment just by itself. Yeah. And we so you know I think we've been discussing this in the past and we really need a way of doing it, of course, that it's not just a way that's going to um, cause financial problems. Like we're not, we don't want to cut off subsidies, for example, for beef farmers, but some sort of a plan could be developed where they can transition away from what they're doing now into something that uh, that will protect the environment, but without just cut them off from their subsidies straight away and then therefore creating, of course, yeah. enemies. That was one criticism levelled by the IFA, who, you know, you, I have mixed feelings about, but the, at the the former Environment Minister, John Gormley, for basically agreeing to a set of targets with the EU without giving much thought to how they're actually going to be carried out in terms of what's actually good for the environment and what can be sustained by people's needs. Yeah. So, so why why is it why is it that we're suddenly talking about farming out of the blue after um, not really giving much preamble to it? Well, it's because... Uh, Ireland recently saw the formation of a brand new climate science, climate change and climate science denial group known as the Irish Climate Climate Skeptic Group, they like to call themselves. (laughs) Known as the Irish Climate Science Forum. Yes. The very um, innocently named, just climate science. It's all all science. Yeah, it sounds very good. But in fact, it's a bastion of climate denialism, which is not exactly what you would call on science. According to Jim O'Brien, the organiser, members of politicians, members of the media and NGOs were all barred from this strictly private event. So you can tell that they're obviously uh, conducting some very above board uh, peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer based science yeah, there. Yeah. As, as John Gibbons pointed out on uh, thinkorswim.e, an excellent blog on this topic, he points out that uh, that that's not how you do science. Like, you, you, if, you, no. if you're going to be presenting stuff as scientific fact it needs to be open to criticism and to challenge it's very insidious the way that they've named it considering that they're just for propaganda you know and that 90, 97 or whatever it is percent of it is actually 97% of climate scientists around the world agree on anthropogenic climate change yeah, in other yeah. words human caused climate change so yeah, to call it climate science is just very very sneaky yeah, yeah. and it's, it's been uh, a Met Aaron meteorologist I can't think of the name now of the fellow he pointed out that uh a lot of the, of the stuff used in this um, in the in the presentations that they were given would not be considered science because they're using graphs and information from studies that have since been debunked by newer studies yeah. and they just pretend like that never happened yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that's a very typical tactic that's done all the time in these kinds of campaigns where something has been disproven as something bad they'll just continue with the bad old science yeah, yeah. it's like uh, it's like vax, vaccines anti-vax kind of stuff you know it's already been debunked a long time ago and we, I guess we don't need to dwell on what they're what what line they're pushing too much. If you want to learn about what their um, what 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 their agenda is, you can look at the article on thinkorswim.e, uh, John Gibbons' website, which describes it in in, in great detail. But um, they basically they seem to be, as he would summarize it, they seem to be there to defend the interests of of the beef and dairy industry. 
which is kind of sinister because at, at this point in time the government is intending to you know instead of trying to meet the Paris Climate Agreement goals it's intending on expanding into the beef and dairy industry anyway they want to scupper that totally yeah so um, so what they want to push in the direction of and the fact that it's secret is uh, not exactly very reassuring in any case. No. They clearly have something to hide. So there's someone to definitely keep an eye out for because they could be a small group, but they represent, you know, big money. They could have a lot of resources, a lot of money to throw around, like, you know. Yeah, like, they, uh, they clearly represent a powerful, a powerful lobby anyway because one of their members is Matt Dempsey. He used to be an editor of the Irish Farmers Journal. Uh, he's also edited, he was editor of that for 25 years, I think, who have don't have a great record when it comes to climate science no uh, he also recently uh, re- edited a book uh, chronicled the history of the Irish Farmers Association who I mean they've, they've they released that statement there by the was Thomas Cooney talking oh, about yeah. the need for, for quick and affirmative action on climate change but that was kind of vague and as you said in, in in what it meant because it wasn't necessarily talking about lowering emissions it was talking about it depends about, on the details of what comes out of it because yeah. it could be something very good or something deceptive Based on how you read into it, you know, yeah, yeah. and based on what actually happens from this point on, you know, so it's something you'd be very, I'd be very cautious about. So the question I would have is, who exactly do the IFA represent? Mm-hmm. The Irish Farmers Association. Do they represent the interests of farmers in general, or do they represent yeah. the interests of the most wealthy and most powerful farmers? Likewise, who do the yeah. Irish Climate Science Forum represent? Which is even shadier again because the Much fact shadier. that there's yeah, so it's even harder to find that out. But I I would uh, I would kind of guess or assume that it's more likely that the IFA would represent mainly the richer farmers. Who's I mean you know my own uncle was a farmer, smaller time kind of farmer back you know we're going back like twenty years now. He eventually had to become part time and then part time working for the council because farming on his scale just became impossible. So the the economic policies that went around farming, including the EU and subsidies and the way that the prices basically went, meant that it became impossible unless you were doing it on a large scale. So, you know, small farming ended a long time ago. Or, I mean, small farming is not, like, in any way done on a scale of what it used to be done on. Mm-hmm. So, for the most part, the farmers that are left are big farmers. So, the, even in even insofar as the farmers that even exist these days, you have you have more concentration. It's like companies. There's less companies in the world, you know, many decades ago, and they're bigger con- conglomerates and corporations. The same with big farming. So, by default, they're already representing at the top end the richest farmers so it's more that's what I was trying to say earlier is that they're more they're less like a workers union and they're more like an employers lobby group right. like IBEC or something like that they're a business representation group so they represent the interests of big capital basically so that's one of the reasons why I would be cautious about any statements necessarily that come from the IFA although it could be something to welcome and you know hopefully be proven wrong on that kind of scepticism but you know we have to be aware of like we have to understand you know the logic of big capital and in many cases, it can, sometimes, you, you know, in many cases, they want the status quo to continue. So we were talking earlier about, you know, we don't want to cut off farmer subsidies for things like beef production in general. We want to transition them and present a positive path that get them on board with. But at the same time, it's big capital's interest to it, to keep the status quo going. So potentially there is a quite an uphill battle there. But uh, yeah. let's see how we can uh, structure. Um, I mean, I'll personally be trying to think of ways that you could even advocate for 
you know, some positive way that, as I said, doesn't involve the loss of livelihoods for any yeah. people who are workers or and farmers. And the loss of ways of life as well. Keeping people rural. I mean, it, it, this is all part of the story as well of the decimation of rural Ireland yeah. and, uh, and the West in general, for example. And just, you know, the more rural parts of the country in general and urbanisation. I mean, that's also directly a, a climate change issue is cities are becoming too big and too dense and that we need to, we need to incentivise people to move back at, out into smaller towns and countries, which actually happens in Spain. I know some people, some some friends of my partners who's Spanish, um, uh, you know, who've moved out from Madrid into towns up in the mountains. So um, it's kind of like a little bit like that. They were kind of encouraged to move out there for very, very che- incentivized with very, very cheap, I think, house to buy or to rent. I forget which. And it is necessary, not just because the cities are becoming overcrowded and, like, you know, we're in the middle of a housing crisis at the minute. There's, there's like, there's not enough room for people to live in the cities. There's not enough provision for people to live. And housing to, crisis. To sustain themselves in the city. Um, Opportunity for... Um, capitalist uh, landlords who are just absolutely criminal and should all be put against the wall as far as I'm concerned as yeah. an example to everybody else what not to do like yeah. how's any different from like the war of independence were they not the same battling basically the same kind of landlordism that was they, just they were they, the landlords were just waving a different flag at that time but, absolutely yeah um, but it's all it's all part of the same kind of bigger picture I guess that we don't want to find ourselves kind of allowing ourselves to be tricked into thinking that we're talking about rural interests versus urban interests there there that's that's kind of a false divide there's no need for us absolutely to, and i think the reason it's important for me anyway to identify that divide and to not allow it to dictate the conversation is that we we have a very centralized very very much so centralized centralized government with like a strong concentration of power in dublin so the government even though it's made up of representatives from all over the country, is going to be very Dublin-centric and very urban-centric. And it's it always has been. When we talk about investment, it's all about investment in the city or, or investment in high-tech projects like this uh, Apple data centre in Athenry that we're going to start talking about yeah. in a minute. I, I don't see the conversation happening on a national level of like, how are we going to diversify agriculture in Ireland? How are we going to get more people doing agriculture in Ireland, more people employed in agriculture? Whereas the develop, development of new economic models that are going to be able to continue on past certain dates. I mean, the challenge of any kind of government or state or uh, authority that's working on a national scale is to um, protect itself from future economic shock. So you, how do we move away from a big farming to get you know food production on a scale that's more sustainable again? Yeah. So we need to be thinking creatively in those ways. So we need to invest back in. Yeah, this brings us on to the next topic we wanted to cover, which is the issues around Apple's planned data center in Athenry. And I want to talk about the group Apple for Athenry because this this kind of blew me mind now when I first heard about it because I, I don't think I've ever come across like a grassroots, like genuinely local, local people organized group that were in favor of a large multinational corporation coming and establishing a project in their town. Yeah. So it seemed completely insane to me at first. I really couldn't wrap my head around it. But I thought there's there's no use in just making a laugh at these people and brushing it off. Like what what is it that they're they're actually, they actually want? Yeah. And basically what they want is investment in Athenry, employment, and they want reasons for people to stay, which is Absolutely. I mean, we can all relate to that. I mean, like the vast majority of the people I went to school with don't live in our hometown anymore. They've all moved away, myself included. And we did that because there was nothing for us there anymore. There was no reason to stay. There was no nothing we could have done with ourselves, no employment. Basically, rural Ireland is dying and has been dying for quite a while. Yeah. 
So you know any any genuine reason I think, and I think it's, it's I think it's fair enough to want people to to have development happen in those areas that people don't need to move away because it's nice to move to another place because you have the choice, but to be like to see and so many of our generation gone to like London or Australia or whatever you know, and even not just even just as far as Dublin. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a tragic story that we're talking about here, really. So I don't blame them, really, in a yeah. sense, you know. And let's uh, actually we, before we, we we kind of move on with the topic. Uh, just we should give it maybe a clear uh, rundown of the story there and that is that Apple want to build a data centre near Athenry and it's being opposed by two local residents and one guy from County Wicklow in the courts uh, for environmental reasons um, saying that it's, it's wrong for the area it's going to be harmful for the wildlife in the area and it's going to use at, at its peak would use 6% of Ireland's national electricity usage so we're talking about something data centres like that support internet infrastructure are almost like cities in terms of the electricity they use. They're huge, yeah, huge electrical constructions, um, and very, very big, yeah. But here again, we've got the classic kind of. It seems, at least on the surface, like the classic kind of middle class environment environmentalism versus the broader interests of the locality or something like that, yeah. Um, Which may seem to be in conflict. Yeah, but I don't think there necessarily needs to be a conflict here. What the question I would ask is, it's yes, we need. 100% we need investment in Athenry but like why is it that people think Apple building a data centre there is going to be good for Athenry or for Ireland more broadly is that really the kind of investment that we need or exactly. is it just a case that well it's the only thing that's on offer because the government aren't doing anything well trace it back to trace it back if you were talking to them to the local people why do you want the data centre or why what kind of benefits do you envisage coming then they'll talk about what they actually need and then you can trace it and work it back to well okay maybe we can have not just Apple coming in because they just happen to want to go to Athenry. You know, someone actually comes up specifically with a plan to help Athenry and to help other towns in general. You know, so a custom-built thing. So in other words, not forgetting about the rest of the country, having a proactive programme. Because this was just an, like, Apple could decide to go to any under, other random town. Yeah. It's just an accident if they wanted to go there. No, there should be, there should be you know, government-employed planners whose job is to come up with plans and ideas for places for for reinvestment and that involves you know it's you know this is why government funding is a thing this is why taxes are a thing we can use these to invest like strategically in places why not like why not take uh, my tax like i'm i'm i pay taxes i'm glad for my money to be used to invest in a way that's going to be going to make it easier for people to stay in other parts of the country that so that we don't all have to come move in. i like living in dublin but it's not nice that like we're forced to work here that's only jobs in dublin if yeah. you're from where i'm from i mean that's not a good thing i couldn't well, work in if I wanted to why should I not be able to if I make that you know choice yeah. why can't I move to a smaller place and have like you know and work somewhere nearby and have somewhere to live nearby and not have all the housing crisis of Dublin well housing crisis of Ireland in general but especially Dublin but I think a, a, a huge contributor to the housing crisis is that people can't find employment where they're from of course so yeah there's a higher concentration of people that can't be looked after in urban areas we all have to go to Dublin all of us I mean even pe people people trying to access homeless services in other parts of the country they're all told there's nothing for you here you have to go to Dublin yeah. and then they arrive in Dublin and they're told well you're not from Dublin so there's a six you have to like wait six weeks or some ridiculous length of time before you can even get help in Dublin everything in Ireland, Ireland is so woefully resourced isn't it it's just disgraceful like yeah. like literally anything that the government does is just inadequate <laughs> yeah yeah well, I mean, some people might call you contrarian for saying that, but you're not wrong. <laughs> I think a lot of people would probably agree, but yeah, uh, yeah. if anybody disagrees with me, please email your uh, submissions, your uh, disagreements, 
into turningearthradio at gmail.com yeah. actually maybe we should bring that up now if, if, if anyone has first of all Anthony, any contributions like to, in yeah, general yeah. if there's anything you want to talk about if you want to come on the show and talk to us if there's just something you think we should cover give us a shout but also and especially if you disagree with anything we say here if you think we were factually incorrect about something please let us know because um, like I said we letters to the editor yeah exactly yeah, yeah. We, we do this in the few hours we have to spare after work we're not like dedicating hours a week to researching this yeah I'm sure you'll have noticed we're not ma- hugely researched into this but we do as much as we can in the time that we have but the main, like, one of the main reasons that we wanted to do the show was to facilitate conversation or to get conversation going even if it's only with 10 other people or something just to get people talking about these things that's true so if you disagree not just with the facts of Anthony saying but if you're ethically on the other side of the page to us please get in touch if you'd like to and we can we can have a debate about these things because that's the only way that there's going to be any progress if we can that's right there's a lot of things to be debated there's a lot of subjects there's a lot of things we've thought of that you know for future episodes that'll be coming up I know at some stage we're going to be talking about uh, transport policy and uh, the roads cars and bikes and that kind of thing at some point but um so basically, yeah, if there's anything you want to talk to us about or any contribution you want to make, please get in touch at turningearthradio at gmail.com. So yeah, you can also send us a message on Facebook, which is the URL is facebook.com forward slash turningearthradio, same as the, the email. Uh, so I guess we're, we're done for this episode. Um, but just uh, before we finish, we'd just like to talk about a few things that are coming up in the future. First of all, uh, we are planning a film screening to happen sometime in August in Jigsaw. Uh, formerly Shoma Spree um, and Belvedere Court in Dublin too uh, yeah there's no date set for that yet but uh, keep your eye on Facebook and we'll, we'll announce it we will announce that yes um, the, it'll be a kind of a donation based thing and uh, all the money will go towards printing stickers so we can get the all for good cause yeah, yeah. Uh, and next is uh, Eric's going to talk briefly about the upcoming Citizens Assembly on Climate Change which is titled it is titled How the State Can Make Ireland a Leader in Tackling Climate Change just wanted to mention this uh, briefly because they are taking submissions there's going to be um, a Citizens Assembly not presumably not entirely unlike the one that happened recently on the uh, Eighth Amendment which um, produced some some really positive results um, was far more progressive and modern, if you like, than what was envisaged, especially by the government that uh, called it as a yeah, kicking yeah. the can down the road technique. It's calling on submissions from people, ordinary public in general, and I think that those submissions are going to be used to put structure on it. So they haven't even decided like an exact kind of format yet. You know, I mean, it's and it's, it's it's very important that uh, that, like you said, ordinary people or just people like you and me, people who are out there doing their thing, make submissions because there will definitely be a lot of submissions coming from the lobby groups such as the ones we were discussing earlier uh, to to shape the narrative if you will of this conference who represent a small number of human beings but a colossal amount of money (laughs) colossal amount of resources that those those, those, uh, rich people have and control and are related to they do actually so they're saying here on the the website submissions are invited across the full spectrum of issues in relation to climate change but in particular the assembly would like to hear your views from Ireland's energy transport and agriculture sectors so, so if you work in any of those sectors with it yes and within the, within all of those there would be some definitely the lobby groups and interests represented of big business in there and big energy and big agriculture and big transport so a lot of climate denial potential potentially can come from that so if you work in any of those industries and you're a climate realist then you definitely should make submissions but even for general members of the public and i'm sure i will be as well you know 
so we just want yeah. to make people aware of that so, yeah so if you want to submit to that uh, check out citizensassembly.ie and it's on their first page they're making Ireland the leader in tackling climate change make a submission yes. uh, so we'll leave it at that for this time and uh, talk to you next month talk to you next month <laughs>